Every Friday and Sunday, Slate's popular daily news podcast, What Next?, brings you What Next? TBD, a clear-eyed look at technology, power, and the future. From fake news to fake meat, algorithms to augmented reality, host Lizzie O'Leary is your guide to the rapid technological changes reshaping our world. Those changes aren't always visible, and they aren't always what they appear to be. That's where TBD comes in. Lizzie and her guests help listeners parse out what matters, what doesn't, and what's next. Subscribe to What Next TBD in your favorite podcast app. Hey, hot cakes. Welcome to Hot Take. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mariana Hegler. Amy, today we're going to dig into what's happened in the climate front over the past couple of weeks. Excited? Let's, uh, I am excited, but let's not call it the climate front, Mary. Let's not. Because it's too weathery? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess we're at this point where there's no front or back and everything is back to the climate crises and we're engulfed. So, sure. So today we're going to talk about how Joe Biden is doing with Gen Z. Spoiler alert, not great. Mm. Also, the, the horrifying, truly horrendous heat wave that has enveloped South Asia and how courts are grappling with climate change. Yep. And a couple of surprises along the way. So let's dig in. It's time to talk about climate. I have never been a big white wine person and especially not in the fall. But after becoming a member of First Leaf, I'm a convert. First Leaf knew exactly what types of whites to send me that felt familiar and delicious and would get me excited about trying something new. I love First Leaf because they make it easy to get personalized wine delivered on my schedule right to my door. Since I choose the day that my shipment comes, I'm never stressing out about missing a delivery, and every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. I love how I just have to answer a few questions and they just know what I'll like. No more zoning out in the store looking at a hundred different bottles and trying to pick the right one. Give your palate what it really wants with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F dot com slash drilled. Tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled. Okay, so we recorded this episode uh, the day day, well, actually just a few hours before Politico leaked a draft opinion indicating that Roe v. Wade is pretty much on its last legs and we can expect for it to be overturned or drastically eviscerated next month in June. Um, I'm seeing a lot of stories about this, a lot of people very understandably and visibly upset about it. Um, But what I'm not seeing a lot of is how this is connected to climate. So I'm actually really excited to ask you, Amy. Well, not excited. (laughs) Nothing about this is exciting, but very intrigued, (laughs) very intrigued uh, to talk to you about how this is connected. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, well, there's like a bunch of things that kind of came to mind for me. One is that immediately people were like, can we pass a law that enshrines Roe v. Wade 
in law. And immediately it was like, nope, because Joe Manchin. <laughs> I was like, why is he? Why does he just show up everywhere? He basically people He's were like, where's Waldo? <laughs> I know of fucked up shit, right? I know. Like just. Yeah. Yeah. People were like, oh, if we just get rid of the filibuster and then immediately Joe Manchin was like, I would not like I don't want to get rid of the filibuster. The filibuster protects abortion rights. It was like, oh, mm-hmm. OK, Joe Manchin. Um, how so? I don't know. I do not know how how he makes those connections in his mind. But um, he's been inhaling a lot of coal smoke for a long dust. time. <laughs> coal dust. Mm. Yeah. Does he really? Does he like actually go into the mind? I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt it. I hope that one day some inventive person um, forces him to do that. That would be fun. Anyway, um, <laughs> the other connection is is of course in the, in the form of the court itself. So I I think this bodes pretty badly for a lot of aspects of climate policy and climate litigation. This is very much the court showing that it has no problem breaking precedent. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have been kind of hanging their hats on that uh, with respect to things like the court's ability to kind of dictate what the EPA can and can't regulate. Um, There's a couple of big cases that Establish the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, and there's a big concern that those could be overturned as well. I personally am very much of the mind that one of the climate liability cases or fraud cases is definitely going to be the next Citizens United at the Supreme Court, and that this— What do you mean? So the big argument that all the oil companies are making in these cases is that— Whatever they have to say about climate change is political speech, not commercial speech, and is therefore Mm. protected by the First Amendment. They've been they've had a First Amendment attorney making arguments for them all along. So it's kind of been a pretty clear indication that that that's the uh, (laughs) the argument that they're going to lean on. And, you know, I think that if they bring that argument to the Supreme Court, that this bench is is not going to shy away from from really blurring or obliterating the line that has always existed between fraud and protected speech. Um, so I think you're going to see this Supreme Court expand corporate rights even further as they sort of minimize individual rights, which is not mm-hmm. a not a great direction to be headed in. If you care about climate action, I think the other big thing to keep in mind is just the history here. So I don't know how many folks realize that, you know, the history of the anti-abortion movement and the history of the climate denial movement and the history of the anti-civil rights movement are all it's all the same folks everybody it's all you know i was you know i noticed that in pictures it's like oh these people have doppelgangers yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's really you know it's almost like they're connected through white supremacy. It's almost yeah. like they're all part of the same. Yeah, exactly. It's like, look, yeah. the idea has always been to protect the power of wealthy white people. And um, that is why you often see like, you know, school choice, which is basically um, 
pro-school segregation (laughs) alongside anti-abortion, alongside climate denial, alongside anti-union, like all of these things overlap in um, in the sort of right wing agenda and in a lot of ways um, are all reactions to the Brown versus Board decision in the 1950s. I, I don't think people understand quite how much the whole quote unquote states rights movement was born out of that. The Koch brothers were very much inspired by the Brown versus Board decision. There's a great book, um, particularly about the Koch's involvement there. It's called Democracy in Chains. I thought states rights was born out of slavery. That too, but in its kind of modern form, like the Koch brothers mm. Tea Party revolution, it's it's directly tied to Brown versus Board because they made the the argument in the wake of that that this was federal overreach of states' rights and that this was going to be like a slippery slope eroding states' rights. And they used that argument um, again and again and again. And then kind of out of that, you see the whole charter school, school choice movement growing. You see all of their climate stuff, like all of those arguments kind of end up tying together. And in the case of um, of abortion, really like the, the, the pro-school segregation people needed a way to bring the religious right along with them. And um, it took them a few years, but they found abortion as the thing that they could use to bring those folks on Mm. in. So I I just I think um, it's important to remember that these things are all tied together, not just because Oh, it's it's an interesting history or it, it all ties back to white supremacy and capitalism or, you know, racialized capitalism or any of these things, although that's also important, but also because those things are still all intertwined today in the effort to obstruct you know labor unions, climate action, reproductive rights. Like they're the the opposition to to those things is all tied together and yet those of us who are working for climate policy or for reproductive choice or for you know public school funding or for labor unions often divide those things up into separate issues. And I I think it's a losing strategy. And I think that it has been for a long time. And, you know, the climate movement has kind of incrementally gotten slightly better at it. But like, I just don't I don't understand what it's going to take for folks to see that the people they're fighting against are um, working on all of these issues at once. So why shouldn't we? Including voter suppression, which is like the ultimate one, right? So yeah, so why shouldn't we? Why why do you think that siloing these issues out is an effective strategy to a well-funded, you know, deep bench of people who connect all of these things together? Right, because that avoids the controversy, Amy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Every, like every time I hear, and I still, I swear, Today, even on Twitter, someone was like, oh, you know, wrapping all these other issues up in climate is going to stop us from acting on it in time. And I'm like, oh, my God, avoiding all these issues is what has stopped us from acting on it for 30 years. Um, Right. Right. Yeah. Aren't you glad you're back on Twitter? I am. 
you know, I actually like have have managed to really I only like dipped in there for five minutes today and then I was out. So I'm going to try to keep yeah. that up. Um, OK, good luck. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I think the other thing, too, that it's it's important to remember is that, you know, abortion, reproductive rights in general for a long time have been you know, part of a whole kind of eugenics-fueled mindset in the U.S., and we definitely see that coming into climate conversations a lot. I know as, like, someone who has kids who works on climate, I have every almost every single time I post anything, I have at least one person being like, well, you shouldn't have had kids then, bitch. Um, (laughs) You got to get on the mute button. I'm telling you, the mute button is beautiful. So is the block button, because fuck those people. Yes, yes. But it's a it's a common thing. And I, I very, you know, I think Extinction Rebellion has gotten probably into the most high profile trouble over this over the years. But there are a lot of climate activists who very much um, will make the argument that the biggest problem is population and that people need to stop having kids and all of this stuff. And that very quickly devolves into who is and isn't having too many or or too few kids. Um, And all of that's Mm -hmm. tied up with abortion, too. Um, So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of tie-ins. This is not a conversation that's going away, unfortunately, so there will be a lot more to talk about. But we thought it was important to get at least this bit of grounding information out there. I just have to say that for the last couple months, I've noticed an annoying trend on Twitter, which is basically boomers being like, what's going on with these young people? They need to just suck it up and vote blue. Oh, really? (laughs) I feel like that's not just boomers. I feel like that's anybody over the age of like, I don't know, 50. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The elder Gen Xs are, are right up in there, too. And I'm finding it really annoying because the the answer to this question, I also see people posing it as a question like, I don't understand. Where did they go? What do they want? Why are they doing this? Is yeah. It's all climate and no one is really making that connection. Yeah. It's irritating. It is irritating. It's kind of like it's like this willful uh, disorientation between what we've seen play out across all of the past electoral cycles where like – Young people are recruited as these voters, and in the they've been wary of that ever since the Obama years, right? Like that was the last time you really got young voters to come out and like believe in a candidate on the left, um, at least a presidential mm-hmm. candidate. And they've been let down along the way every single time. So it's like you speak their language during the campaign season, but when it comes time to actually govern, they become these pesky kids. Right. So, of course, they become disaffected. And, like, when you're treating the planet that they need to live on like like it's expendable, kind of difficult to trust you. Kind of difficult. It is. I also am noticing, too, in a lot of the coverage of this that even like the political reporters are not connecting the dots Mm-mm. on climate. They're like, oh, maybe it's about student debt or maybe. And yeah, sure. All of those things come into play. But like, I don't know. I, I know that when I hear Gen Z people talking about disappointment with the Democratic Party or with the government in general, the number one thing I hear is that, you know, they ran on a climate platform 
and all they've done is expand fossil fuels. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> you're like yeah. Gen Z people. That's that's the term right there. Um, I think I think some <laughs> of these folks are referring to millennials, too. I think they're referring to people who are in their like 30s and late 20s as well. Mm hmm. Yeah. It almost feels like a nostalgia to me when I hear people talk about young voters this way of like, ah, these young kids, they never know how to like this. There's sort of a politics of inevitability about the way that young voters are talked about as though like, well, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was young, I used to think it was the end of the world and it wasn't. And I was just really passionate. And that's just how you are at this age. But it's like it's very different now. <laughs> it's not right. just that like young people feel like the world is ending. The IPCC is kind of telling them that. And then they're watching the people that they've elected to save them, so to speak, or to like at least give a fuck are not giving a fuck. So yeah, right. they're of course they're disaffected. Right. It reminds me of all of these um, studies we're seeing in articles about how like depression yeah. and anxiety are up mm-hmm. in kids, right? Right. And like, what is missing from those articles, Mary? Climate change. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's it's bizarre. I did see one article that tied it in, um, and I, I I wrote about this for our newsletter. But like, they tied in uh, climate change, but the way that they thought it was affecting kids was that kids were hearing too much about it. And it's not that <laughs> kids are hearing too much about climate change; they're hearing too much about no one doing anything about it. So imagine the level of betrayal and the level of uh, abandonment that these kids have to feel to see that, like, Mm -hmm. and they don't, I mean, a lot of these kids don't have the power of attorney. A lot of them don't have the power to vote. And they're supposed to be able to trust their caretakers. Like, that's how you wind up, like, if you just look at it as a relationship between a parent and a child, if a parent neglects to take care of a child, that is how you break the relationship. And so right. that is how you break the relationship between a constituency and a politician or a, a political party by not fulfilling your yeah. promises. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't really be mad. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to do like a quick rundown of what mm-hmm. we've seen just in the last few months of of the Biden administration really, you know, shitting the bed on climate. I can't say it any other way. I'm sorry. I I I believe that's a technical term. So you're good. good. (laughs) So we've got doubling down on gas, Mm -hmm. restarting uh, drilling leases on public lands, which that was like the one big climate promise that he made during his campaign that he actually kept rolling that back. Actually, can you go deeper on that, though? Because I'm not sure everybody knows about that. Yeah. So, you know, a significant amount of oil and gas drilling in the U.S. happens on public lands. And that is controlled by um, the federal government through the Bureau of Land Management. Mm-hmm. They they lease land to oil and gas companies to drill on. And, and during his campaign, Biden said he was going to put an end to federal leases for drilling. A lot of offshore drilling happens that way, too. So that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did do that. And there was some court cases back and forth over that. But um, but that was one thing that kind of went forward. And then as soon as all of this kind of Russia-Ukraine stuff started, he said, OK, never mind. We're going to restart leases on federal land, mm-hmm. but we're not going to do it as much as previous administrations right. did it. So the vast majority is happening totally outside of, you know, federal control over that. Um, and, and that is ramping up as well. 
But we have Biden agreeing to a major gas build out and guaranteeing demand until 2030 for that gas, Mm -hmm. really locking in new fossil fuel um, infrastructure for at least a decade. The total failure on Build Back Better, which is not necessarily Biden's fault. We all know Manchin is is up to no good. But I also think that there's a there's an element of this that's like it does. It feels like the leadership of the Democratic Party is not aware of the environment in which they're operating anymore. Oh, you know, my like they, God. They keep playing. <laughs> yeah. Like they keep playing this form of politics that's like. Oh, compromise and we can, you know, we can get to a middle ground and whatever. And it's like, look, that time has passed yeah. and you need to kind of realize it. Yeah. So anyway. They said they're going to like legislate like it's 1999 or something. It's it's, yeah. it's kind of bizarre. It's like they're in Groundhog Day, but they, they still haven't realized the day has changed or something. I don't know. It's strange. Exactly. Um, exactly. But also, like, I, I had questions on Build Back Better. So as I understand it, this legislation is not the only way to climate action and could use the Correct. executive power that he has and declare a climate emergency. Right. There's been a lot of people talking in, in the climate movement about Various ways that he could use executive actions in terms of declaring a climate emergency, which would immediately unlock funding for certain things um, in terms of reinstating the export ban, which is obviously not going to happen now. Wait, what's that? So the export ban was in place from the mid-70s to 2015. Mm -hmm. It banned U.S. oil and gas producers from shipping oil and gas overseas and actually delivered on the promise of, quote-unquote, energy security because it made us less open to the the vagaries of the global markets on oil and gas. Mm -hmm. That all went out the window when the fracking guys started to um, produce so much that they really needed to sell it overseas, and they lobbied Congress to lift that. Obama did lift the ban in 2015. Environmentalists have been you know, talking about reinstating it ever since. But in the context of um, Russia, Ukraine and Europe being really short on gas, that is just like a totally politically untenable argument mm-hmm. to make right now. So, you know, we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. There are various things that that Biden could do outside of getting Manchin to agree to anything. I think he just seems very much not the type of person to do those things. Um, and to be fair, the second that he does anything by executive action, it's going to go straight to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is unlikely to side with the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. So there might be some sense that, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, that it's just a, a fool's errand to even try. Yeah. I think that people underestimate or overestimate how bad failure to pass something is if people at least saw yeah. you trying You know, so like not trying because you're pretty sure that you're going to fail. I don't think that that actually that actually looks worse for you than not trying at all. I mean, certainly in the context of this youth voter thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like I I know that I've been hearing from a lot of the folks in the Sunrise Movement, for example, that like they feel like they worked really hard to deliver the House to Democrats, right? And then it was like, well, we need the Senate and the executive, too, if we really want to do something. And so they busted their ass to deliver those votes, too. And what have they gotten for it? Nothing. Yeah. Like the same, the same old, same old. So I think that 
even if it was performative, you know, doing doing something, trying mm-hmm. to do something, you know, would maybe win them back. Are there, I don't know, like, are there any messages you think, Mary, or um, moves that could win kind of the the climate youth vote back at this point? I don't think it's about messages, right? Like, I think that mm-hmm. people are are really smart. Um, and they're like, they're, they have access to so much more information than they used to have. So it's like so many of right. these um, politicians that we're talking about have been in office pretty much my whole life. And they're still operating like it's the 1990s when people didn't have access to information at the scale that they do right now. So, like, you could come up with a great message and people didn't have the time or resources to research what you've actually been doing and see if your message matches your record. We don't live in that world (laughs) anymore. So, like, you could come up with a great message, but we know what you did, right? So, like, Mm. Democrats have backed themselves in this position where nobody can believe what they say because we all see what they do. So, quit worrying mm-hmm. about what you say and like go do some shit yeah. you know what i mean it's yeah. like we see the wildfires we see the hurricanes we know you have not fixed this problem and like sort of i feel like the democrats are constantly getting caught up in like how do we message this how do we message this i see this with the ukraine war too it's like trying to trying to brand it as the putin price price hike or whatever it is it's like right. quit worrying about who to blame and start worrying about how to fix it or at least help people through it yeah. I think it's worth pointing out, too, that it's not just young people who are feeling increasingly desperate about climate. We just had in April this horrific news of a longtime climate activist who set himself on fire in front of the Supreme Court on Earth Day yep. as a protest against the total lack of movement on climate policy. And honestly, it was barely a blip. And the the papers that did cover it mostly did not mention that it was connected to climate, nope. even though it happened on Earth Day. Um, and this guy was, you know, like a, a lifelong climate activist, which just felt like disrespectful of him. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, his name was um, uh, Wynn yeah. Allen Bruce, um, and he'd been mm-hmm. planning it for at least a year. Um, and wow. yeah, and he's a... You know, he's a Buddhist, so this is like a, a pretty sacred act of, of protest um, to draw attention to a cause that he really cared about. And the other thing to know about it is this is not the first time this has happened. Right. There was a similar story, I believe it was in 2016, um, where a man set himself on fire to protest climate change in, in Prospect Park. And that also mm-hmm. barely got talked about. So I kind of expect it better in 2022. You know, because the media has gotten a lot better about climate change, but they still kind of fall into this trap where they see environmentalists or climate protesters as like extremists and radicals and unreasonable. And I think that's kind Mm -hmm. of why they ignored this story, because they're always seen as histrionic anyway. Right. Which I think totally ties into the way that that climate is talked about in the context of of politics and policy, which it doesn't totally neatly fit into. And and we're going to get into what exactly that means right after this quick break. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself, too, and keep it simple. 
I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Hot Take is brought to you by Magic Spoon. I think we're all probably trying to eat a little better these days, but healthy breakfast does not have to be boring. Magic Spoon has the amazing flavors you love, all the stuff you remember wanting to eat as a kid, but without all the bad stuff. It has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. There's also only 140 calories in each serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. That's a lot of freedom. Yeah, I know. It's true. It's true. The variety pack includes four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. Mixing cocoa with peanut butter actually tastes exactly like a peanut butter cup. Go to magicspoon.com slash HT to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code HT at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash HT and use the code HT to save $5 off. Thanks, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Hot Take is brought to you by the new documentary podcast series, Will Be Wild. Mary, have you started listening to this podcast yet? Got started today and uh, yeah, pretty obsessed. It's really good, right? It's about the January mm-hmm. 6th insurgency. So, of course, as you know, on January 6th, thousands of people stormed the U.S. Capitol at Trump's urging. He had tweeted, quote, be there, will be wild. And that's where the show gets his name. Yeah, <laughs> One of the few times he was not lying. Yeah, it really was. It's true. Yeah. From critically acclaimed podcast studios Pineapple Street and Wondery comes a new documentary series called Will Be Wild. It shines a light on the human stories left out of the January 6th headlines and goes deep into the lives of people who took part in the day. The people who saw it coming and the people who fear that January 6th was just the beginning 
You'll hear from former U.S. intelligence members who warned about the incredible rise of violent extremists in America, a former soldier charged with seditious conspiracy, and a son who turned his father into the FBI. Will Be Wild is a close-up look at the four-year effort to bring autocracy to America and what the insurrection could mean for the future of our democracy. Follow Will Be Wild wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. And we're back. Climate. Not a political football. Jesus, I really wish people would stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also the 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 big problem about all of this, like political jockeying around climate change, is that it kind of obscures the fact that climate change is not like a nice to have. We have to have a planet. <laughs> to exist like it, it's real basic right. like it sounds corny because it is so freaking obvious it sounds like something a two-year-old would say to you but that doesn't make it less true <laughs> we can't right. we can't live right. nowhere else y'all and we're seeing very That's real <laughs> effects about this like climate half measures cost whole lives you know like yeah. Lots of people die. And so one of the things I want to draw attention to is this heat wave going on in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh this month. The temperatures are absolutely horrific. Pakistan hit more than 122 degrees at one point. And that is well above points at which the human body can start to not function, especially if there's enough right. humidity in the air, right? So that means that your body can get so hot that it can sweat, but the sweat can't dry. And that means you can't cool yourself off and the body will start to shut down. These are temperatures where if you're outside for more than like 10 minutes, even if you are perfectly healthy, even if you have enough um, access to water, like an endless water supply, you're in the shade, your body can still shut down. And we're not mm. even at the height of summer yet. Right. It's going to keep getting worse. That's the terrifying thing. Exactly. Is that, like, there's no end in sight. It's going to get worse. And then, you know, like, you, yes, okay, you can put in air conditioning, but then that, you know, strains the energy system, also exacerbates climate change, you know. And um, there was there, – there's a, a water researcher – um, who I follow on Twitter, mm -hmm. Dr. Aditi Mukherjee, who made this great point that I was like, oh, yeah, so simple, but so true, where she was like, yeah, when are the the big emitting countries going to get that, like, they actually have to reduce emissions? How do you adapt to temperatures like this? Right. You can't. Right. You can't. There's only so much you can do to adapt to 122, 123 degree weather. Right. Right. And uh, speaking of big emitting countries, I know that there are a lot of folks who will be like, well, India is a big emitting country. And what I want, <laughs> that drives me insane. People love that. <laughs> people, <Yeah>. do, <laughs> people do love that. So first of all, India's, car, India's greenhouse gas emissions, even today, are far behind the first two emitters, China and, and America. Like it's not even it's not even close. Like I think they're barely in the double digits of percentages, whereas mm -hmm. the U.S. and China are like 27, 25 percent or something like that. India pales in comparison. Also, India, I don't know if folks know this, has a billion people. 
<laughs> I I I got the right. chance to visit India once, and not I I wasn't ready. I was not ready to see that many people, and it's like really dense. Not everybody has access to energy. A lot of people don't. The energy grid is not even that reliable. So, <laughs> not exact. And if you look at India's historical greenhouse gas output, it's it's right. not even visible. It's really not even visible. Right. Which is really important because when we're talking about warming today, what what's mostly responsible for that is historical emissions. And in that category, you, America is definitely number one. Yeah. You know? um, so, yeah, this this um, redirect that people like to do. Of, what about India? What about, you know, it's just... Um, it's disingenuous. Right. Yeah. And to be very clear, that doesn't mean that India doesn't need to get onto clean energy. But there are reasons that its hands have been tied and not been able to do that. And I'm sure there are probably, I don't know everything about the, the government and everything. I'm sure there's probably been some missed opportunities and some mistakes along the way. But it's just, it doesn't compare mm-hmm. to the United States. And it's not fair to have it in the same sort of ranking in that way. Yeah. So just to yeah. make that clear. And just to like to tie it back to the political thing, I you know, I think when you're talking about people literally dying on the street mm-hmm. from temperatures that are too warm for humans to survive in today in 2022, not 10 years from now, not in 2050, but right now, that is very different from haggling about like who should pay for health care. Right. You know what I mean? And I, I I really wish that that political pundits would sort of wrap their heads around that fundamental difference that like when we're talking about climate change, we're not talking about the laws of the land. We're talking about the laws of the universe. Right. And you need to talk about it a little bit differently because of that, like things that we do on a policy front actually impact whether people will live or die and actually impact multiple generations in the future. It's really not about who's paying for what or this or that election or whatever. It's just not the same kind of chess game that we're used to to talking about politics as. Not that like it's I'm not saying continue to talk about all these other important things that way right too. it's it's annoying across the board but in the case of climate it's just plain inaccurate right it's just not how it works and the thing about climate is that it narrows the horizon of the future right so like yeah. with all of the other things you could argue that like we live to play another game and like we can save more lives in the mm. future or something like that climate change locks right. in suffering at a biblical scale uh, with no way to reverse it known to us. So like this really is not a game. So if you give me a legislative package that has something for the fossil fuel industry and something for the clean energy industry, <laughs> Everybody's I'm supposed, happy. I'm yeah, supposed to be yeah. over here getting crunk behind some some tax credits for some solar panels. <laughs> like that doesn't make sense. You can't save and burn a planet at the same time. It doesn't work that way. And just to, like, bring this a little bit closer back to home, I want to talk about um, the story that came out about coastal Louisiana this week. So this week there was a story that came out about, like, what are the what's the worst case damage in dollars that would happen from, like, 
coastal to coastal communities in the event of like floods and storms, et cetera. And in 2017, they did the study and it was $2.7 billion. They reevaluated it and now it's $5.5 billion in annual damage. Wow. Like it got that much wow. worse in six years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the thing is it compounds, like inaction compounds the cost of the problem in by every metric. Like, you know, if you want to put it in economic terms, definitely in economic terms, in, you know, lives lost, it's like it's a compounding problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, this is supposed to be some of the, the damage that would happen from a 100-year storm. And I believe Ida was right. a 150-year storm. And that was just last year, right? These terms like 100-year storm, 150-year storm, they're starting to not make any sense anymore um, because we're starting to have these storms like all of the time. Um, Like we're breaking records to the point that like it doesn't even make sense to say record-breaking anymore. Speaking of which, um, so hurricane season starts next month. Um, and they've released the names. <laughs> yeah, they've released the names for the hurricanes this year. And some of these, I got to tell you, they might actually add insult to injury. So I'm a little bit upset about them. If I get hit by some of these storms, I'm going to, like, I don't know how I'm going to process this. So um, I didn't quite catch this, but after 2020, when they had to go really deep into the Greek alphabet because there were just so many storms, the 2020 hurricane season broke a lot of records. So they stopped Mm -hmm. going into the Greek alphabet and now they release two sets of names. And so if we go past the first set of names, they have a backup set of names that they will go into. Okay, so here's some of the ones that... and. It's all funny now, but come June, none of these words are going to be funny. Uh, Tobias. Virginie? Virginie, not Virginia. Virginie. Virginie. Oh, weird. Yeah. Heath. Heath? Like Heath Ledger? Yeah. There's a Heath. (laughs) Um, Also, there's a Nolan. Now, if New Orleans gets hit by a storm named Nolan... The writers have gotten really fucking lazy. And there's there's a storm, Tayshawn, which I think the National Weather Service just wants you to know they took a DEI class. That's all that is. Um, And the the last one that I think, there's a PAX. Amy, what you going to do if you get bitch slapped by somebody named PAX? Is that a nod to uh, Angelina Jolie's adopted kids? I don't know, but PAX is supposed to mean peace. I know. That's hilarious. How Gaston? Is there really a Gaston? There's a Gaston. <laughs> like from Beauty and the Beast. Oh God. This is gonna be a terrible segment to listen. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> this is gonna be a terrible segment to listen to come September. <laughs> okay, Amy, I have this story I've been dying to talk to you about and I almost texted and called you about it several times when I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to wait till we're on the on the podcast. So save it for the tape. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Yeah. Let's do it for the pod. Um, yeah. But I, did you hear about this profile of Tucker Carlson that came out in uh, the New York Times this weekend? I vaguely heard about it, but I did not read it. So I'm excited to hear more. I think didn't it didn't they they do some kind of research that proved that he is in fact the most racist cable news guy? Ever? One yeah yeah. 
Um, they analyzed deep into his his archives and like, girl, I could have told you that from his Twitter feed, but okay. Um, yeah. But you yeah. would love these articles. Um, not love them because they, they will leave you feeling deeply unsettled, but they will be very fascinating to you in terms of how misinformation is spread over there. But one of the things that I don't think people are quite getting is that Tucker Carlson talks about immigration a lot. He talks about mm-hmm. refugees a lot. He talks about the yep. great replacement theory, this idea that like people of color are, are coming to the United States to replace white people as like more docile voters. Um, I don't think people realize that when he's talking about that, he is talking about climate change. You know, yeah. like people think that he thinks that climate change is a hoax. He doesn't actually, um, from what I saw, he doesn't talk about climate change as a hoax. He talks about it as a trick, right? Like sort of like they don't really care. They, the Democrats, they don't really care about climate change. They just want to take away your freedom. That's not him saying climate change isn't real. Right. That's him saying that they don't care about you in it. And by his constant harping on refugees and immigrants, he is like refugees and immigrants are going to have to come here because of climate change, because the United States fucked up their homes. So they're going to have there's nowhere to go but north. And so he is basically poisoning the country against those people so they're not able to come here. So that the resources we have left are kept for people who are already here. And there, it does not take long. And we can already see that, it, it, you know, it's already happening that that turns on black and brown people in the United States already, black and brown and, and Asian people as well. Um and I don't I don't think I think it's lost on a lot of people that this is a climate story. Yeah, this is ecofascism. Absolutely. I mean, this is like it's actually it's so interesting because there are a bunch of the groups that really went big for Trump in 2016 that who, you know, their sole thing is anti-immigration are already putting out, you know, videos and whatever about how we need to like keep our resources for ourselves. They're like tapping into sort of this old like conservation wave of of anti-immigration sentiment. Um, and it is, I mean, yeah, like as I mean, we've been talking about this for a long time that that the quote unquote climate denial crowd would go straight from saying we shouldn't do anything about climate to using it as justification to um, pass anti-immigration policy. And like, yeah, mm-hmm. we're already seeing that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So my um, can I tell you my favorite Tucker Carlson trivia um, tidbit? Absolutely. So Tucker Carlson hates his mom. Yes. His mom was a hardcore hippie Mm -hmm. who, like, abandoned the family. And I swear to God, that is the root of his, like, entire career of hating on libs Mm. is that, like, his mom was a hippie who abandoned him. Um, I mean. (laughs) Tucker Carlson's mom, if you're listening, you could have given him some hugs. Oh, girl. Is all I'm saying. Uh, (laughs) So one thing I learned from the story, she is dead and she left him one dollar in her will. Um, <laughs> so there's that. Um, but I also just want to add that, like, so you remember the 2019 um, shooting in El Paso? Yes. Which was very flagrantly yes. eco-fascist for folks who don't remember yeah. or, you know, a lot's happened since 2019. Um, basically, it was um, a white guy took a gun to a Walmart in El Paso and specifically targeted Latino, Latino shoppers. 
basically, um, saying, and he left the manifesto that was basically the eco-fascist blueprint. And if you're wondering what eco-fascism is, you're not familiar with the term, it's fascism, but from an ecological standpoint that basically acknowledges climate change is real and we have limited resources and they're going to be used for white people, goddammit. And Mm -hmm. so that was Mm -hmm. his manifesto. When that happened, Tucker Carlson said that white supremacy was a hoax. And supported Whoa. supported this dude. Um, and one of my favorite quotes or most chilling quotes from reading this was, this is Tucker Carlson directly. They hate white men more than they hate global warming. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That really sums up the like the overlap between the sort of, I don't know, grievance filled yeah. white guy thing with uh with ecofascism. Yeah. Wow, that's Yeah, mm. the whole time he's basically just Ooh. saying that Democrats are they care about climate change for clout, which is it's a really juvenile argument, but it's also intoxicating to his audience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, cuz then they don't have to think about, you know, climate change or how they might be contributing to it or how, you know, systems they've supported might have contributed to it or how it might affect their kids or, you know, like any of that stuff. Or that maybe they're under the thumb of the same systems of the people that they've been trained to hate. Right. Like Tucker Carlson is this big elite person. Right. Like he's 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 uber rich. Um, He's Mm -hmm. like from the upper crust of society, but he's convinced these like, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, poor whites that he is Mm -hmm. their savior, that he is their reflection. But actually, they have way more in common with the Black Lives Matter protester than with Tucker Carlson. Yeah, there's this real fear, right, that the carefully crafted racial arguments that have kept poor working class white people, you know, aligned with elite white people for so long are are being eroded. And they're really doubling down to try to make sure that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. God forbid the vast majority of people who are badly impacted by all of these systems figure it out and get together. Right, right. So, yeah, shout out to the um, to the reporters who did that research because it can't be me. Couldn't be me. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a tough assignment. That is a tough assignment. Um, Okay, I have a little surprise for you, too, Mary. First, Oh, my God. Is it earrings? It's not earrings. Damn it. It, It's a documentary. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Even better. Oh, my God. It's um we'll we'll play a little clip of I'll play you a little clip of the trailer here. For a lot of young people right now, life is really scary because we've never seen a moment like this in history and our feelings about our life and our future is all because of choices that we had no participation in. And so the plaintiffs joined this case because we all know who's to blame and, and what needs to be done. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this. Uh, youth- yeah, this is the trailer for the documentary Youth v. Gov, which is now playing on Netflix. And it's about this youth climate case that's been going on for like a long time. Mm-hmm. I think it started in... 
I want to say it started in 2016. Mm-hmm. It's called the Juliana case because it's the the girl who was speaking there in that clip. Her name is Kelsey Juliana, and she's the the named plaint like lead plaintiff in the case. But there's um, over 20 young people who are plaintiffs in this case, and they're suing the government not just for not acting on climate, but actually for incentivizing the fossil fuel industry. Oh, so actually aggressively contributing to climate change, which is a really key thing to point out because I swear to God, every single media story gets that wrong. Mm-hmm. Still to this day, like eight years into this case, I still see things that are like the Juliana case is trying to you know, punish the U.S. government for not acting on climate. No, their, their argument is that in aggressively supporting and building out the fossil fuel Um, infrastructure and subsidizing the industry that the U.S. government has aggressively eroded these young people's right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a constitutional case, actually. And and it looked like it was dead in the water a year ago. The the Ninth Circuit Court in California, yeah, said, like, no... They don't have standing. The these arguments are too broad. Blah blah blah. But it has is back now. They filed an amended complaint in Oregon, and they're waiting to hear from the judge there about whether it will be allowed to go forward. It's looking likely because they basically amended the complaint according to what this judge suggested that they do. So it seems likely that it it'll go forward. And for a period of time, they were supposed to be having like um like a negotiating period with the Department of Justice because it was a new administration and there was some thought from the courts that, oh, maybe you'll be able to work out a deal with the Biden administration, Department of Justice. But when I talked to the lawyer on the Juliana case, she was like, yeah, no, they're like the Biden DOJ is like more interested in proving that they're not partisan than in in like doing anything that would actually help Biden's agenda. So um Yikes. so that went nowhere and now they're waiting for this judge to um to rule on whether the case can move forward now. It's a little bit narrower than it was, but it's still it's still in place. So it's kind of an interesting time for this documentary to come out cuz usually documentaries about court cases come out like when the case is finished but um but this kind of shines a light on this case that's still ongoing and is really it's really interesting and it has inspired like dozens of other youth climate cases all over the world um so so yeah it's worth a watch i i also want to just note to people that um that one of the arguments that they make in this case and that this lawyer, Julia Olson, has made to me a, a few times is that um, she's like, you know, I've seen these other cases sometimes will go in and they'll argue for governments to make sure that they're doing what they can to keep warming to 1.5 degrees or less, which is like this kind of goal that came out of the Paris Climate Accords right. a few years ago. Which is not a scientific goal. Exactly. So like her argument is like, look, if we're purely going by science, what you really want is zero warming. Right. And that's what we're asking for in this case. And she also made the point that she's like, you know, in in plaintiff litigation, which is usually like, you know, you're accusing someone of harming your plaintiff and um, you want them to 
a, like fix that damage. She's like, you know, like you see this in the pharmaceutical cases or um, things like that. Like you don't go in asking for the compromise. You go in asking for what you actually want. Right. And if they argue you back to the compromise, that's fine. But like um, but she kind of, you know, takes this stance of, look, if we're going to follow the science, let's actually follow the science. And the science says really no amount of warming is safe, as we're already seeing. We've warmed to about one degree at this point. And we are seeing very clearly the impacts of that. So um, anyway, highly recommend. People should check it out. Yeah. And I'm like watching, you know, I'm I have a Google News alert for that case. So yeah. once once this judge rules, we'll see um we'll see what's happening there. Where can people watch it? Netflix. Oh it's on okay. Netflix. Yeah. Um, which is cool. Although it's funny because <clears throat> excuse me, I saw a bunch of climate people talking about it, but when I went on to Netflix, they weren't like featuring it at all. It wasn't like it doesn't seem like they're promoting it that much. So um, kind of weird. Yeah. You have to search for it. Probably uh, it. probably because they just assume that climate, nobody actually wants to watch climate shows. Unless like I guess. somebody um, brought up the Obama uh, like National Park series on Netflix to me. And it's like, it's really mm. cute that he's like, you know, making these documentaries about how we need to protect these places when it's like, homie, you were the president. I know. For eight Actually, years. Actually, there's a great um, <clears throat> there's a great Obama clip in the Youth v. Gov documentary where he's like bragging about how he made the U.S. the number one producer of oil and gas. So right, it's, <laughs> it's like the reason these places take. aren't protected <laughs> is because like at least even if you had like a change of heart, you understand the science better. Like, great, welcome to the party, but like, kind of admit some culpability, honey. Right. Yeah, Netflix promoted the shit out of Don't Look Up, so it's kind of weird that they're not promoting this. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, people should go see it. Check it out. And that brings me to another whole bunch of things that I want to talk to you about today, Mary, which is court cases. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. It's my favorite litigation mm-hmm. nerd. Um, a little, a little <laughs> lawyer corner coming up after this quick break. Hot Take is brought to you by Future. Future believes that people motivate people. And having your own Future Coast isn't just the best approach. It's the only sustainable approach to your health and fitness. Your coach will tailor your plan to your goal and balance consistency and motivation to set you up for long-term sustainable success. They will be there to celebrate your achievements and give you the extra push that you need. I know for me, there are two main reasons that I work out. One is because it helps me just like feel better in my body. And the other is because the zombies are definitely coming. Um, And I don't want to be the slowpoke. All right. Like I want to be able to fight and run my way to safety when the zombies get here. I had it on my 2020 bingo card and it didn't happen. But I'm just going to keep it on there for every year because like gestures at everything. Stay ready. Exactly. Stay ready. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Um, And that's why Future is perfect. Future isn't a fancy piece of equipment. This isn't a get fit quick plan. And this isn't a YouTube video. With daily coaching and tailored workout plans, your future coach will support you through every step of your fitness journey. There is no risk to try Future. And right now you can get 50% off your first three months and cancel any time in the first 30 days at tryfuture.com slash hot. 
Hot Take is brought to you by Real Paper. It's estimated that Americans flush more than 10 million trees worth of toilet paper every year. And if you're using conventional toilet paper that comes wrapped in single-use plastic, odds are you're using tissue that's cutting down trees from North American old-growth forests. And I don't think enough people understand why old-growth is so important. So, y'all, the older the tree, the more carbon it takes out of the atmosphere while it's standing and the more carbon it puts into the atmosphere once you cut it down. So you really don't want to be flushing that shit down the toilet pun not quite intended real paper is looking to change that and is available online on amazon and now in most targets nationwide real paper uses fast-growing bamboo in their paper products instead of virgin tree fibers from our forests uh amy you're a fan of real paper aren't you i am and i have a dad joke for you are you ready here it goes does an environmentalist i'm always shit ready in the woods absolutely and then they use real paper Boom. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Um, you got me. Didn't see that coming. Real is now available at most Target stores nationwide, Target.com, and on the Target app. Target carries our convenient 12-pack box that has the perfect size to try out your new favorite tree-free paper. If you're looking for real in a Target, it should be easy to spot. They'll be the only bamboo toilet paper and the only option that you'll find in 100% recyclable plastic-free packaging. So let's stop flushing our forests and give Reel's tree-free paper a try. Zero trees, zero plastic, zero compromises with Reel. Okay, we're back and we're going to talk about courts. And I swear it's not going to be boring. Um, I feel like people tune out often <laughs> when, when the idea of court cases come really? up. Really? Because that's where all the you know, fun is. I think it's so interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Do you know what kind of underwear lawyers wear? What? Briefs. Briefs? Is it briefs? I said briefs. You heard me say briefs. Oh. <laughs> 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 oh lord um so you know we talked about this kind of political gridlock at the beginning and we talked about people starting to feel desperate which is true mm-hmm. um one thing and we talked about this this poor guy who um self-immolated at the supreme court there is starting to be a major wave of litigation that's targeting climate. And we're starting to see some actual results from it. it. For the first time ever, actually, in this most recent IPCC report, they specifically um, had a little box talking about litigation as a tool for driving climate policy. Mm. Um, so that was a big deal. There are more than 1,800 climate cases happening around the world right oh, now. Wow. That's a big number. <laughs> um, more than 1,300 of them are right here in the U.S., which to me kind of speaks to, OK, yeah, people feel like the government is not working on this. And that's when you start to see a lot of court cases around things. Mm-hmm. You know? But the place that I never see anything about them is the media. And I don't I don't really get why mm-hmm. there's just not much coverage of these things. I I, I think that like. I feel like the media is kind of set up to cover court cases when they're filed, maybe, and then maybe when they're settled. But there's no, like, there's nothing that, there's nowhere you can go to really get kind of the 
backstory of these cases. Occasionally you'll get like a New Yorker feature yeah. on a case, you know, or like an Atlantic story. But um, every time I tell people there's 1,800 climate cases happening all around the world, they're like, what? Why do I never hear about them? Yeah. Do you think it's also <laughs> you know? a function of like climate being typecast as a science story for so long? And totally. like court reporters just being like, well, it's climate, so it's science, so it's not my yes, my lane. Yes, it's totally. It's like the the um, the court reporters don't really know how to how to cover the climate part, and the climate reporters are are put off by the court part because there's a lot of you know language and process around litigation that's just not familiar mm-hmm. to any reporters outside of. Of court reporters. Right. So, um, so yeah, it kind of gets missed, but it is actually a place where um, things have been happening lately. Mm. So um, internationally, there was this big rights of nature case in Ecuador mm-hmm. um, towards the end of, of last year. So rights of nature is this legal concept that basically gives ecosystems rights um, I think Americans in particular initially react to that as though it's really radical. And then you have to remind them that corporations have human rights. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, one of them is a living thing and one is not. And one is not. Yeah. Yeah. So for a really long time, rights of nature has been treated both by the environmental movement and by you know, people across the political spectrum is something that's like really out there and really radical. This case in Ecuador um, went all the way to the constitutional court there, which is their equivalent to the Supreme Court. Um, and the the constitutional court sided with a cloud forest um, over a mining company <laughs> and and over the government of Ecuador that had given um, a lot of permits to this mining company to mine in protected forest areas. So that was a huge deal. Mm. There's been really interesting um, kind of ripple effects throughout Latin America and even in kind of the U.S. environmental nonprofit realm where people are starting to go, oh, maybe we should take this seriously, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, there was also a new investigation started by the California Attorney General into ExxonMobil, one of our favorites, um, <laughs> for lying about plastic pollution. So this is really interesting because for a really long time, even climate people have kind of failed to grasp the very simple fact that plastic companies are oil companies and vice versa. Um, plastic is made with petroleum and chemicals. Or these days with ethane, which is a byproduct of fracking and petrochemicals. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, honey, your 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 vegan leather, that is a fossil fuel product right there. That's a fossil fuel product. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So all of the same companies that you see in all of the um, climate cases about, you know, climate denial and misleading the public on climate and fraud and all of that stuff, they're all involved in the plastic business, too. And in fact, plastic is the big escape hatch for the oil companies as people reduce their use of fossil fuels in transportation and buildings the industry is is looking at, okay, how can we get people to consume more plastic? Right. People often want to connect climate change with the like plastic in the ocean. 
And mm-hmm. it always goes back to personal responsibility, almost always, instead of going to the fossil fuel industry, which is like, there's a reason we're so dependent on plastic. Right. I mean, overconsumption is definitely a problem and you should curb your consumption as much as you possibly can. Um, but mm-hmm. someone had a vested interest in making all of us dependent on plastic. That's right. And that's what this investigation gets into. It's really interesting. They look at um, ExxonMobil's role in pushing plastic, in um, being part of a few different trade groups that messaged around how much consumers should embrace plastic, that really, you know, um, worked on the image of plastic and in particular that pushed the idea that recycling would basically take care of the plastic problem. Um, so it's it's very, very interesting. It's hilarious because Exxon's initial response to this Go fuck yourself. was to <laughs> yeah, was to point to the fact that it's now doing this thing that it calls advanced recycling, what? which is basically just like the next phase of the bullshit recycling myth from the 70s. So it's like just a classic Exxon move to like assume that people won't have caught up to the latest bullshit that they're peddling. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what that all ends up turning into. I think I think it's pretty likely that that will become a court case Mm. um, either this year or next year. Wait, wait, wait. What is advanced recycling? Oh, God. Okay. This, it is some serious bullshit. So they call it advanced recycling or chemical recycling. And basically, it entails taking waste plastic. So, like, you do a beach cleanup and get all the plastic, and then you heat it up a lot. They're very particular about saying it's not burning plastic, it's not incinerating. So, you heat it up to a high heat. Would you like to take a guess what you turn it into, Mary? Soup. Nope. What? Mm-mm. Fossil fuels. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's the circle yes. of life. Yes. Or death, yes. actually. More like the circle of death. Yeah. Yeah. So that's their big thing that they're promoting for why plastic is fine now. Because don't worry, we can turn it into fossil fuels, a thing we all need more of. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> so like, you, it's... like, melt the plastic and then you burn it as a fossil fuel. Correct. That is correct. Yes. It's really something. It is really something. Um, So Exxon is at the center of many, many of these climate cases. There are more than two dozen climate liability cases. So these are are cases where um, a county or a city or a state has said, look, the bill for adapting to climate for us is enormous. And you guys did all this stuff to block any kind of policy that would have made this problem not quite so bad. So we would like for you to pay for your percentage of the bill. Mm. Um, that That's essentially the argument that they're making in those cases. They've been locked up in these jurisdictional arguments for the past few years. The fossil fuel companies have said, oh, this belongs in federal court. Um, And then they want to make the argument that really Congress should be taking care of this and not, you know, one by one cases at the state level. And so far, they have not managed to make that argument stick Anywhere. Mm-hmm. So just in this past month, a couple of really big rulings came down once again, smacking that argument back. So those cases are starting to move again. Exxon is also the only company named in a fraud suit 
that's been brought by the Massachusetts attorney general. Mm-hmm. And there again, they have tried for years to get rid of that, including actually suing her for suing them, <laughs> which is hilarious. That's a power move <laughs> for you right there. It was a classic Exxon. Um, and and they have they have kind of exhausted all of their arguments on that front. They're waiting to hear back now on whether um, that case violates their first amendment rights. Wow. Um, and it looks like, you know, maybe they might win a few of those arguments, but I don't think it's going to be enough to throw the case out entirely. So that will get moving. And, and you know, I think a lot of people are like, well, yeah, but if any of these cases end up at the Supreme Court, we have a very, you know, anti-regulatory Supreme Court. They're unlikely to rule against oil companies. For the oil companies, I think their big thing is to really try to avoid what's called discovery, um, which is this like research period where the people suing them can like ask for certain documents and they can interview people who work there and they can interview people who used to work there without them breaking their NDAs. So they would like to avoid that. Exxon mm-hmm. in particular doesn't need any more bad press. It'll be interesting to see what they do if they try to fight or they try to settle yeah. um, as these things move forward. Do you know what the Exxon lawyer named their daughter? What? Sue. Oh, man. So good. So, you know, there's some good news happening in the courts. um, And I will wrap up the good news court segment with the news that Stephen Donziger was finally released 900 days after he went on house arrest. Yeah. Yeah. So for folks who don't know, Stephen Donziger is an American lawyer. He represented a group of indigenous plaintiffs and farmers and community members in the Ecuadorian Amazon in a case against first Texaco and then Chevron when Chevron acquired Texaco about oil that was dumped in the Amazon. He actually won that case in Ecuador. Chevron immediately sued him in the U.S. to try to block anyone from collecting on that judgment and have kind of been harassing him ever since yeah um he so yeah he was put on house arrest for something that comes with a maximum sentence of six months it was a contempt of court charge and he ended up being on house arrest for almost three years for that charge he did go to actual jail for i think a month or so in there as well um he was disbarred Chevron has a lien on his house. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of a um, a real illustration of what happens when you when you go up against a big oil company. But um, yeah, he's really continued to try to to kind of shine a light on them and and to kind of, you know, make the point that, like, look, if this can happen to like a 6'4 white guy who went to Harvard, you know, how well is our justice system working in general? Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think necessarily through any fault of Donziger's, but the story, because of how much has happened to him, has tended to focus on him and not on right. the Ecuadorian people who still don't have access to clean water, still have massive pits of oil in 
the Amazon right. um, still have, you know, indigenous communities that have been displaced by all of that um, and are still looking for ways to deal with that problem. Yeah. So unfortunately, that problem persists. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We we talked about that in our first episode of this season, but if you want to learn more mm-hmm. about the Donziger case, which is really fascinating, because um, it's really the Ecuadorian case, um, go listen to Drilled Season 5. Season, season five. 5. I always get season that confused. Five. Sorry. Yeah. But that is Amy's <laughs> other excellent climate podcast, um, looking at the history of a lot of these climate cases. Can't recommend it enough. And that case is so complicated. Mm-hmm. I feel bad for any anyone who had to try to write like one magazine feature about it because it is yeah um, it's a lot it's a lot of twists yes a lot of twists it is it really is okay so we're gonna wrap up with a new segment that i think is gonna be a favorite what are we calling it mary you named it what is it All right, so I feel like the first billionaire we're going to burn makes a lot of sense. He's if burning you've all of us. To this show, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's the one, the only, Ishmilan, Elon Musk. I I know that this is really difficult for you because you and Elon go like way back, and you know I know you have so much respect and admiration for him, so. You know, thank mm-hmm. you for agreeing to have this objective conversation. So I, my first question to you is like, heads, he's a genius. Tails, he's a genius. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. Yikes. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, this idea that Elon Musk is a genius. I mean, uh, debatable, I would say, at at, at minimum. Mm. But also, who cares like, I, I just, I would like for people who are like, but he's a climate hero to to show me the receipts on that. Because while, yes, he absolutely helped to make electric cars cool and build out an electric car industry, I, I credit him with that. I really do. I think that, like, he had a lot to do with that. Um, he has also ventured into space tourism, mm-hmm. a thing that is very likely to to come with a lot of, of bad emissions. I'm just saying, like, I noticed that every time I see a rocket take off, I'm like, ah, that can't be good. All that fire coming out of his butt. That's probably bad. Yeah. It's burning something. Yeah. I wonder what that is. It's really bad. It's really bad. He also has argued against public transit, which, you know, I'm sorry, but is the ultimate goal we're trying to get to, like everyone having a personal electric car is is not it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. It's not. <laughs> you know? um, so, you know, OK, fine, whatever. Like he can do um, he can be a business guy. He can do whatever he wants. But I think the problem in general with the way that that these billionaire tech guys tend to take over um, various systems and have really tried to take over the whole conversation about what is and isn't a climate solution is that, you know, they tend to pick solutions that benefit them and they do a total end run around democracy. Who's voting on these right. ideas? Right. 
I mean, uh, so the reason we're talking about Elon is because he's threatening to buy Twitter. He has not bought Twitter. He's. It feels like a prank that's going way too far. Um, so maybe he actually will <laughs> yeah. buy Twitter, right? Because, like, on the one yeah. hand, he has this history of, like, buying companies that are all, or, like, worming his way into companies that are already set up and successful, like Tesla, pushing out the founders. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, boom, I'm the electric car inventor. I'm so, I'm so innovative, <laughs> right? And so I could totally see yeah. him being like, yeah. all right, I did the Tesla thing. Now I'm a social media mogul, right? So he could totally do that. Right. It's in his MO. Right. But what is also in his MO is to start doing things and then back out at the very last minute. My favorite example mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. So I think I told you about this already. But so Seize Candy, this big candy company, is owned by Warren Buffett. And Elon <laughs> wanted to create a peanut brittle company to rival it and got really, really close to doing it and then backed out at the last minute. So I could see him doing the exact same thing with Twitter. It like it also it doesn't make financial sense for him to buy Twitter. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how this is going to go. But I know you deleted your Twitter. I did. I did because I wanted to just take a beat and and like clean up my DMs and yeah. you know whatever else. Because although I saw people making the very valid argument online that you know. Twitter has always been owned and run by weird billionaires. True, true. But um, Elon Musk actually has a a real specific past with um, targeting journalists in particular. He did not take it well when journalists started to write critically about Tesla. Mm -hmm. He never got used to the idea. He goes after people who... Um, criticize that company. And that's fine. He can do that as a private citizen. Um, But I don't know if having that person in charge of the platform makes it particularly safe for journalists. Um, I also just want to remind people of another little failed venture of of Elon's. Pravda. So this was this was an idea that he had a few years back, actually as a reaction to the way that journalists were starting to point out that, you know, they had a lot of worker safety violations. They had a ton of I mean, Tesla factories have had so many pollution violations, both in terms of hazardous waste and in terms of Clean Air Act violations. Um, There's news coming out this week around what's happening with the SpaceX plant in Tesla. And I just I would also like to say that I Googled it while we were talking here and space flights emit 100 times more CO2 per passenger than regular flights. And they don't be having but like five, six passengers on them. Yeah, I know, because I watched a documentary that really made me want to like I don't know, put sand in my eyes or something. It's awful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Pravda was his like Yelp for journalism idea. It was basically like um, this. It was going to be this app where people could rate the credibility of journalists. And then you would have to like put everybody's Pravda score like next to their articles or their Twitter avatars or whatever. So when I think about Elon buying Twitter, I'm like, how is he going to use this? To, to feed into Pravda at some point mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and like, you know, basically try to intimidate and get rid of journalists that are, you know, critical of him or his bros. 
I want to I want to go back to this idea that like people are like, oh, t- Twitter's always been owned by weird billionaires because it, yeah. so Twitter is this really interesting place because on the one hand it can be really valuable and it's really like allowed people to debate ideas in public in a way that we couldn't before. It shifted the discourse in ways that we couldn't before. It's been instrumental in these huge um, protests throughout the years that have really changed the world. Mm. Um, But on the other hand, it's been like, just because the discourse is being shaped there doesn't necessarily always mean that that's good because Twitter is where nuance goes to die. It's where the discourse Mm -hmm. goes to be flattened. So my most obnoxious thing about Twitter my least favorite thing about Twitter is when people act like they don't know the difference between bad and worse. So because mm. Twitter's always been bad, let's just let it go straight to hell. It's like, what kind of, what part of the game is that? That doesn't make any sense. It kind of like, mm-hmm. it, it, it seems like we get into the same thing every, every election season too. It's like, Joe Biden was not my climate hero, but I didn't want to go full right. fascist. I really did want to see how that was going to go. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, that's, yeah. And and also yeah. thinking about that in terms of Twitter has been really important to climate activism over the past mm-hmm. years. Um, yeah. It's in particular where I go to cyberbully fossil fuel companies. I'm, you know, right. I, I don't know who I'd be without that anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And also mm-hmm. for like youth organizing, there's been a lot of communities that have built on Twitter and we have this very limited window of getting meaningful climate action, I don't know that we have the time to rebuild those networks on another platform. So I'm very concerned about that. Right. Yeah. Twitter is also, the flip side is it's also been a a hotbed of climate disinformation. Um, It's been very easy for fossil fuel companies in particular to get around whatever policy Twitter puts out to try to curb disinformation. So, you know, they banned political advertising, for example, and that that didn't seem to stop oil companies from doing political ads at all. They now have said they're going to ban disinformation and people are like, oh, that'll get them. And I'm like, guys, like they've already figured out they we we talked about this in the hot take newsletter. They figured out a way to um, basically buy ads in the videos that media companies were putting on Twitter. So media companies have like a special carve out for all of these things. And um, if if Exxon wants to put an ad out claiming that carbon capture is like already saving the planet, they can do that. And all they have to do is partner with Axios, you know, (laughs) which they do regularly. Um, So, yeah, it's um, it's a little bit concerning. We'll see what happens. I'm going to reinstate my Twitter account just in time for all the muskrats to hear this episode and get really mad about us saying that Elon's not a genius. He's not a genius and he's not a climate hero. Sorry. Like, it is not possible to be a billionaire and be a climate hero at the same fucking time. Like, those two things do not go together. If you really... Also hard to be a climate hero and be building a natural gas drilling operation at the same time. Oh, say more about doing. that because... In Texas. Yeah, Yeah, he's uh, drilling his own natural gas to fuel his fucking rockets with. So, like, please explain to me how that is a climate hero. I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. And also, one of my favorite Elon facts, do you know what his favorite Swedish pop band is? What? Ace of Space. (laughs) 
Do you know what his favorite? Genuinely good. Do you know what his favorite yes. book in high school was? Nerd alert. No, what? Tesla of Dubervilles. <laughs> oh my god elon specific dad jokes i love it <laughs> if you like the dad jokes leave us a rating or review that's right that's right and please tell amy my jokes are not dumb they're brilliant <laughs> hot take is a crooked media production it's produced by ray pang and mixed and edited by jules bradley our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thamali Kodakara is our consulting producer. And our executive producers are Mary Anais Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt. Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support and to Amelia Montooth for digital support. You can follow the show on Twitter at Real Hot Take, sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com, and subscribe to Crooked Media's video.